Welcome to Season 4 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Proudly sponsored by All Play. If you're looking for a board game table, bag, playmat, or great board games, check them out at letsallplay.com. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 68, Mission Control, Critical Orbit. Today, we are joined by Corey Andalora and Donnie Coleman, the designers of Mission Control, Critical Orbit, published by 3WS Games. Thanks for being on the show, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Oh, thanks. For sure. Uh, so starting out, we always ask, how did you get into the gaming industry? Yeah, um, it's funny you should start with me because it really kind of started when I uh, when I moved up to Vermont, which is where I currently am, 12 years ago, and I started my new job, and everyone on my team played board games, and I didn't really. I, um, I had played a few as a kid, um, but didn't really know that there was a such thing as a hobby board game, so they had a game night, invited me over. And I really, really got into it. And then you know, about maybe a year later, there was this guy that shows up at a game night. And he's like, yeah, I love board games. I also make board games. And he pulled it out. And it was a, it looked like a real board game. And I was intrigued. And that guy, of course, was Corey. Yeah. Corey. Oh, I feel like I was going to say, that's the cue, Corey. Come on, this could have been really cute. Had you not messed up the timing. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I... Donnie and I got together and, um, you know, because he showed interest and I said, Hey, why don't we design a game together? And what happened was we came across a contest, you know, a simple one on, uh, the game crafter's website. And it was a, uh, design an 18 card game. And so it seemed like a simple exercise. And so we did that and, um, we put a game together called capital vices. Uh, it didn't win the contest, but we, it was a good stepping stone. And so the next uh, step was we figured, hey, let's let's dive a little bit deeper. Let's let's try crowdfunding this. You know, Kickstarter was getting pretty popular at this time and and a lot of games were on there. And, but it was also a low risk game. It was 18 cards like we can we can produce this. This is not a big deal. And so it was a learning experience about uh, how, how the whole process happens, you know, not just designing the game, but, you know, getting the art on it and, and eventually manufacturing and distributing it, which we did. It was very modest, you know, like a hundred or so copies is all, but it, it, we learned a lot from it. And I think what we learned most from it is that we were less interested in the publication side and more interested in yeah. the design yeah. side. And so uh, we continued to hone our design skills and, and push that avenue uh, together. Very awesome. So then what inspired you to design Mission Control Critical Orbit? Like the previous game, Capital Vices, uh, it was for a contest. And this was the beginning of the pandemic. And so everyone was kind of like shuttered in their homes. And the contest was specifically make a game that only one person would have to own, but you could play remotely with a bunch of friends. And so okay. we wanted to not only hit that target, goal and objective but we wanted the theme of the game to also shine through that objective meaning if if this is how you're going to play this game we want it to feel like you're supposed to play it this way right and so that kind of led us down the path of uh Apo the apollo 13 mission was the inspiration right where you yeah. have these astronauts stuck in space and they need to solve a problem and 
their only hope are mission control members who are on the ground, remote, uh, and telling them how to solve those problems. And so that was the inspiration of, hey, we have one player, they have the, all the components, the astronaut in this case, and mission control, uh, at least for that contest, was print and, pro, print and play uh, pages that they could write on to solve their problems in their portion of the game. So they didn't need to own all the components, they only needed a, a small portion of it. Very cool. And so you designed this for the contest. And I guess for anyone who's listening, would you mind explaining how the game plays? The way the game works is it is a cooperative, asymmetric roll and write. Um, there are, it works best with four players, but it can work anywhere from two to four. There's one role that is the central character um, known as the Ethernaut. And they are attempting to put together a path of um, of polyominoes that contain molecules of oxygen, and they are attempting to build a path across a grid from one side to another, from one canister to another. And the way that they are able to perform this task is by being given resources from the three other roles in the game, and those three other roles represent three other cities that are across the world. One role is receiving numbers from the Ethernaut and using those numbers to fill out a grid of numbers to create shapes. And those shapes are what are given to the Ethernaut to put in their grid. Another uh, role is using the numbers to um, fulfill these Sudoku-like puzzles in order to give the Ethernaut the ability to draw some um, something from a bag that resembles a, a key to unlock some paths. And the final, um, the final city is using the numbers to solve these math problems so that the Ethernaut can unlock the ends of the path so that it's easier for the polyominoes to make paths across the grid. And you have to do this in exactly 20 minutes, um, you know, depending on the difficulty level, you have a certain number of oxygen molecules that must be in your completed path in order to uh, win the game. And you all either win um, together or you all lose together. It's so funny. So the first and second time I played your game, I played with some like heavy gamers that were stubborn and decided that they needed to play on like first hard mode, and then they switched to the normal, but they refused to play on easy mode because they felt like playing on easy mode because they are gamers was like too easy. Like it was a child thing. And it was like so mad at them because we were just like the second time when we played on the normal mode, we were off by probably 20 seconds. Like we would have had it had we played on easy mode. And I was like, you guys suck. Why are you so stubborn? <laughs> like it's our first time. Let's play it on the easy mode. Oh my gosh, it's so frustrating. But also pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad you had fun even though you lost. But, you know, it's only 20 minutes. So if so you true. lose, you can just start over. Which is exactly what we did, except we switched <laughs> uh, players. How did you decide on Cologne, Houston, uh, Bengaluru, and then also, of course, Mercury 3 as the like different players for the different puzzles? So this is where Third World Studios came into play. So they uh, they wrote a story. Uh, to go with it. So obviously it's not the Apollo 13 mission. It's this sci-fi world where uh, it's an alternate past almost uh, timeline where 
they've created this uh, organization called SAGA, uh, is the space program. But these three cities are uh, significant because they are cities in three different countries that ha- are have prominent um, space exploration programs. So Houston, I think, is pretty commonly known for, for the United States, but also uh, Bengaluru yeah. in India has a program, and or historically has, and uh, also Cologne in Germany. It's also a way to diversify the game, to to uh, kind of make it a little bit more worldly, but th- those are the, the three significant cities that were chosen. And so I guess like when you started working on the game, how did you start each puzzle and how did you figure out and land on each specific puzzle for those different cities? It was a, it was an iterative process. So uh, in, our, in our version of the game, the three cities were, uh, I believe, if I recall, were Houston, Orlando, and Washington. Uh, originally. Right, yeah. And um, the idea was, again, it was drawing a lot of inspiration from uh, the Apollo 13 mission. And to get in the history of that uh, exact mission, what happened was they they had a, uh, a lunar module connected to uh, a command module. So two completely different uh, craft in space that had different systems. And they in order to get the oxygen well, technically, in that program, they needed to pull the carbon dioxide out of the air so that they could make it breathable. But they had two systems where uh, the the it was like basically a square peg in a round hole situation. And so we drew heavy inspiration from that. I think our original prototype used uh, D8s and D6s to represent the two shapes that you were com- uh, matching up. And yep. Uh, the way the cities came to be is, okay, so we know we need to make these tubes. So that one was pretty easy. We're going to have uh, a one, one uh, city that's making tubes. Yeah. Um, but we're, and then we're like, well, what are other things that have to happen? So you have these canisters, but they're in their fixed locations. So one thing that could be to uh, have to make them move around. So that's where the, the mathematic part came in. It's like you're putting calculations together to to uh, move them around so that they fit better together. And then lastly, uh, the the um, Sudoku Lake One, Bangalore in this case, is uh, creating valves. So in order to get the oxygen to flow through, they need to open the valves to get even more flowing through. Those are, there's certain uh, components that give you like basically double oxygen but in order to use them you need to be able to open them with the valves and so they are constructing these valves on their workbench to make to put them together or technically they're not putting them together they're coming up with the plans that tell the ethernaut how to put them together again this is drawn from the uh the apollo 13 mission where all the the mission control could do is kind of simulate what what they could do on the aircraft and so they're they're simulating on their computers and machines and then they're telling uh the ethernet how to replicate it right and that's why in the game the ethernet is the one rolling the dice and it's sort of like the ethernet is saying okay this is what i see what can you do with this and then everyone sort of um, goes to the drawing board on their individual boards um, and uses those numbers to figure it out yeah, and the important thing to mention here, which I don't know if that we we pointed out, is there's only one set of dice, and the the Ethernet's rolling them, as Donnie said. But all of the three mission control members have to share those dice, so they have to cooperate and agree on which two values to use, even though every one of their puzzles are very different. So they have 
they have to agree which two numbers they're going to use. It might only be useful for one player to use a two, but everybody else has to figure out what to do with that two as well. For sure. I know that we kind of struggled with that initially, but then eventually we're like, yeah, yeah, this person, like we can take this or like, I really need this number. I don't care about the other numbers, but this number I really need. It was fascinating, especially because I played it at a four player and played it at a three player. And so we had to have one person doing double puzzles. And so I guess for anyone listening, if you were to do it at a three player, which uh, cities would you combine to make it a little easier for that person playing as two? So first I would like to point out that uh, you don't have to do two cities. There is an AI deck. So if you choose not to do double cities, which uh, you can do because... Donnie and I have played that way many times. But if you don't want to, if you think that's too much, there is an AI deck that when you flip a card over for the missing mission control roles, it will tell you what to do for those those cities. However, if I was to choose two and not use the AI deck, I would probably do uh, Houston as one of them and uh, probably Bangalore as the other. I would probably not want to mix the math one with another role if I had the choice. Yeah, I was going to say the mm-hmm. exact same thing because <laughs> I, I usually mess up Cologne when I'm when I'm playing as Cologne. Um, something about me personally, like math and time pressure gets to me. Like normally I love math, but, you know, when it's like, no, you only have 20 minutes, I'm like back in high school again and, you know, on a test and, and failing, so... Yeah. Oh my God. That was always me in school. I was like, if you put it in a time test format, I will fail it. I will know all the information, but as soon as you put that pressure on me, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's the cool part about it is that in this game, it's, you know, like I said, it's only 20 minutes and there's different roles. You can figure out what you like to play and then just, you know, stick with that. What are your favorite roles to play personally? I love the the ethernaut it used to be the one that i was mostly afraid of and would always say no i'll just be houston but eventually i kind of learned how to like just breathe through the pressure and being you know it seemed like all the pressure was on me being in that role but it's um it's one of those things where you can just kind of learn to control the chaos by just you know doing what you need to do roll the dice call them out and then just kind of get back to the puzzle what about you Corey? Yeah, I like the Ethernet too, but let me choose a, a mission control role. Uh, I think I I do like Houston um, because it's the it's the polyomino one, and I think right away I wanted uh, polyomino as part of this game. Uh, it was uh, it's something I particularly enjoy in games, and so this allows you in a roll and write fashion to also be part of the polyomino making. So I I really do like that. Uh, you're cranking out pieces uh, pretty fast because. I mean, without the tubes which come from the polyominoes, there's there's no winning this game. So uh, the Houston Houston player gets to make stuff a little bit faster than the other players, and so that that's pretty fun. But uh, I mean, I, I don't want to downplay the other two because they're extremely important as well. Uh, but I, I do like I mean I like them all, but I I think I like making the pieces. I found it interesting when I played that role because that was the second thing I did that just because you had a polyamino that was like a Z shape that fits well doesn't actually mean the pipes on it were going to work out since they're face down and then you flip them up and know what it looks like. That's right. So uh, it's there. The instinct might be always just go ahead and make uh, the piece I can because it fits, but it might not be a piece that's useful. 
and where what uh, alleviates some of those decisions is uh, there's this concept of stars in the game. And so every now and then, uh, players can give each other stars by covering up special cells on their boards. And so this is a, a way that also leans into the cooperative element of the game is you you cover a number up and it and it gives a bonus to somebody else. And one of the stars that an Ethernaut can use is flip tiles from those stacks that you mentioned and view them. They don't get the piece, but they get to view them. So now they have some information to say, oh, uh, don't bother making a Z because uh, this Z is not going to do me any good. Start making me a T or an L because I, I think those will, those or I can see those and those have the things I need on them. Because you're exactly right. Is Just because a shape fits on the board doesn't mean it's going to create your route. The, the tubes are in various patterns on the other side of these tiles. So true. So what did playtesting look like for this game? It was a lot of um, online playing. It was, you know, a lot of FaceTime on webcam at the time because it was during the pandemic and, you know, commandeering our our, um, our game nights, which had been in person up until then to say, hey, guys, uh, would you guys want to playtest something with us instead? Um I think what we did was we had created a a way to generate some of the sheets um, online so that we could test different things out, and then we'd either print them out and you know write on those or just have a, a JPEG um, in paint and and draw on those. So uh, and also a lot of kind of cobbling together of pieces for the person that was playing Ethernet role. I think that was you, right, Corey? You uh did that mostly. I think I did that mostly because I 3D printed all the tiles uh, and 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 right. cut out the stickers to put on there. Uh, Donnie eventually made a copy as well, but it was certainly not something uh, that we wanted to make our, our friends have to do. So they mostly did right. the mission control roles initially. Um, we did eventually get the game on uh, tabletop simulator to uh, to make it a little bit easier to, to yeah. test, so other people could be the Ethernet. So, uh, but. Early on, it was definitely like me or Donnie playing the Ethernet, and also me or Donnie playing the Ethernet plus one mission control role <laughs> when when oh, we can, when we can get all our friends uh, to to play a couple versions. But we wanted to get as many plays in because it's the kind of game with the time constraint and everything you wanted to you wanted to run right up to that that zone. You said you had twenty seconds left. That's exactly right. We want it to be be tight most of the times you play. There's going to be ones that you win early, and then there's ones that are going to feel impossible, but most of the game should be right in that zone. And so tweaking it, the difficulty here and there, we, we had to go over many times to, to get there. And so how did you create the AI deck then? So the AI deck came along, uh, you know, the game was originally when we did it for the contest, because it uh, it was, there was no AI deck. And um, we you had to be multiple roles. But uh, as we, we tried to, shop the game around it became clear that uh that was a, a kind of a you know a, a turn off a little bit to to say yeah you could be multiple roles but what you're really telling us is this is a four-player game and so we developed an ai deck to say let's make this uh, uh, let's make a way for this game to work for less than four and so the ai deck was invented for that and we went back and forth on how to do this and then and one day it just kind of clicked where well, we know that there's a basically a cadence of each of the mission control roles that something gets output. And so we could simulate that cadence by having them come up at a certain rate 
from a deck because every time you roll the dice, you also flip a card from this AI deck. And so that's uh, simulating as if that person was sitting there uh, with you playing at a, you know, at an average, it's like simulating an average player. You know, it's, they're not playing great. They're not playing terrible. They're playing an average player to give out the component at the cadence that they need to. The Meanwhile, any real human uh, player has to still play at a very a good level in order to succeed at the game. So you you can still get the stuff from the uh, missing roles, uh, but still have control of your own role and feel important. Very cool. And so then how did you get it, this game published? Like, how did you meet up with three WS games? The way that that came about was we submitted this game to a contest and it didn't win the contest. But the um, the judges, at least a couple of them, reached out to us and said, you know, we really liked your game. Sorry, it didn't win. But, you know, we were going to keep our eyes and ears open. Um, and then... I don't know how how much longer it was afterward, but we heard um, from one of the judges and said, hey, uh, I think I know a place where this game would be a great fit. Right. And so that kind of opened the door to pitch it to Third World Studios. And they uh, looked at it and uh, immediately they were um, interested because they said they had this, oh, we have this like, IP that we we think we can attach to this. Uh, it's it's. I think one of the uh, one of the members of the, the development team is a huge like NASA fan, so that kind of uh, got them excited about it. And so they went right to work. Like we wanna we wanna like turn this over pretty fast because we think this has the right like um, uh, reach level. They uh, also were in the middle of uh, Stuff of Legends, which was a big Kickstarter of theirs. And so I think they're trying to couple up a, cu- a couple different games to kind of launch all around the same time. So our game and Stuff of Legend are both delivering or available now, I think. So they're all, they're kind of coupled together uh, at all the conventions they go to. And yeah, it was just ended up being one of those like right time, right place, right person. Uh, to find find the match that we needed that's so awesome like to find that and have someone else reach out to get you there is even cooler (laughs) yeah so how long in total do you think it went from like that initial inspiration to it currently starting to be able to be purchased by people at conventions and online through their website that's an interesting question because the contest was not a long runway contest uh now the game now is very different from that but the original game that we made was I want to say it was developed, put together in a month, like super short timeline. Wow. Uh, yeah. But I think it had all the like all, all the the right pieces, but needed needed more development, right? So it, it resonated with with them, but obviously needed some more work. And uh, after after going back and forth with three uh, WS, you know, we needed to add the AI deck to make it playable for less than four, um, and. Also, there was a couple of other concerns, like, um, you know, early on in the game, the Ethernet's not doing enough, or later on in the game, Mission Control's not doing enough. So that we we added some elements to help make the game a little more consistent throughout. And also, yeah. we eliminated a lot of the stuff that just wasn't needed. So there was a time when there was four different color canisters, 
uh, and we reduced that to three. And that did two things. Um, adding a little bit of danger to the game, too, because the, the game was fairly safe initially. Uh, we mentioned how there's yeah. the unlock cards and there's the valves that you pull out of a bag. And those were all safe originally. We, we By removing that one color, it gave us this inspiration of, oh, well, what, why don't we just make red bad? So whenever you pull a red valve out of the bag, it's broken. You can't do anything with it. Or whenever you flip on a lock card over, it could be red and that's bad. You didn't do anything. And so that gives a little bit more danger to the game. So that was a lot of what happened in development to make the game a little more exciting, a little bit more danger, uh, a little bit of those kind of like, oh no moments, you know, the kind that you're, when you flip something over and you said, no, that's bad. Uh, but that doesn't go to say that they're not, uh, mitigatable, right? So all those things I just mentioned, you can mitigate using those star actions I mentioned earlier, where you could, there's one star that action that lets you take the top two cards and put, look at them, put one back on top and one on the bottom. And that's a way to bury those red cards, but you have to use that star up. And if it means you're using it up for this, you're not using it for something else. So there's these decisions to make on how I want to mitigate the thing, bad things that could happen. No, that's super cool. And then I know at conventions, I've seen this oversized version of your game getting played. Whose idea was that for advertising? That was the the publisher as well. Like they were really great about um, how they wanted to market the game. Uh, when they when they told me about this like gigantic simulator that they were building, I couldn't even quite picture it in my mind. But when I saw it last year at Gen Con, it was amazing. It's um, it's this gigantic i don't even know how, what diameter like maybe 12 15 feet across and you you go inside and then there's a table in the middle where the ethernet sits and is doing the polyomino puzzle but on the other three sides of the table are these gigantic easels and you have these dry erase pens and that's where you stand up and you write and you know you're surrounded by this imagery of outer space and i think there's actual pictures of well not pictures but drawing representations of Corey and i um sort of looming over your shoulder as you're writing it's uh it's pretty amazing and way beyond anything i could have come up with yeah there was a number of surprises like that i mean those depictions of us alone we had no idea they were going to do them uh they, they just kind of dropped art in a in a channel that we we're in uh one day and said hey look at these and we heard our jaws just dropped like oh i can't believe it we're we're in the game that's amazing they they totally surprised us with that and then they made this booth and said look what we're gonna do at gen con so, so they've been really great to work with and they they've kind of like done these nice little winks along the way uh in and supporting us and supporting the game and and uh it's been a great partnership that's so awesome. Uh, before this episode started, I actually mentioned that I was brought on board. Apparently at Gen Con, I will be playing your game in one of those pods for a live play that they're calling the Save the Designer slash Creator. I don't know if that means I'm playing the game or if I'm like going to be in a tube and if they lose, I die. Not oh, no. sure. <laughs> but uh, I signed on for that apparently on the like Saturday, August 5th from 1.30 to 2.30. So if anyone's at Gen Con watch me either play or i don't know just stand there and hope that i win or my team wins i don't know that's so that'll be interesting that's hilarious i hope i hope they the next upgrade is yeah they uh they leveled it up by putting a dunk tank as part of it in the uh (laughs) ethernet oh my god could you imagine 
Oh, no. The funny thing is, I think it's going to be me and a different Danielle. So Danielle Stradling. So the double D team. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. That's fantastic. Or D and D. Oh, gosh. Okay. So then for the whole design journey, do you have like a favorite moment and then a least favorite moment? We'll start with Donnie. Um, so I'm weird. And for me, sort of the the hallmark of like when I know a design is going to be great is when I can start taking things away instead of adding more things. So the thing that when Corey mentioned we removed the color, for me, that was like, yes, I know we've made it. Like we were like at the point where the game is actually a full functioning game because we can take more things out and it's and it works even greater. So moments like that where things just kind of click, um, those feel real good. So, you know, for me it was that. It's um it's when we came up with the AI deck. It's it's like those things that we either take something away or we add it and it just makes perfect sense and we don't keep sort of spinning our wheels. Least favorite though. Well, kind of when we lost when we lost the uh, that initial um, contest contest, yeah, because it just you know it was a bummer. It was the pandemic. We had this great idea, and we were like, "Oh man, there's no way we're going to lose," um, but but we did, and it happens, you know. Um, and I'm just also really glad that we didn't just kind of give up on design altogether, and we just kept with it you know we did other things we pursued other projects in the meantime and then um we were patient and you know things just kind of came back around for us amazing what about you Corey? those are really good answers uh i'm gonna go with way back early for favorite way back early in the design when we had this idea it was already pretty cool with the roll and write where hey we share the numbers that's that's novel everyone has to use the same numbers to do different things but there still was something missing. And I think there was that, I can't remember uh, why or who or what exactly happened, but we added the stars and that just unlocked all the fun in the game, right? It said, I, I write this number down, boom, you get a star, which means you get to write any number you went down. And then that could chain react. Oh, I'm going to put one here. Hey, I'm giving you a number right back to put whatever number you, you want. So mission control, whenever they get stars, they get to write any number, one through six, anywhere on their board legally uh, to help finish their puzzle. And when we watch our friends do that, that's when like the room lights up. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you know, Houston, you get a star. And Houston's like, oh, awesome. I needed that four. And and now, hey, that four, let me make the L. Ethernet, you get an L. And that's when you like, I don't know, you get chills playing it because they, they you just bounce off each other, these, these uh, rewards to help solve the puzzle. And it feels really good and satisfying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was my favorite moment is, is basically what I believe kind of made the game like what it, what it is and, and why, it, why it's successful. Least favorite is maybe one thing that was cool. And it, so this makes sense how, where the game is now. Donnie mentioned those uh, generatable boards, right? where we, we wrote software to generate random boards that to give you a different uh, arrangement each time. And, uh, you know, it was kind of cool being able to do those. Now we have physical boards. Obviously, you can't do that. But it was pretty cool that we yeah. were able, there was a time when we were testing this game where we we're pushing a button and, hey, we got a new new layout. Let's try this, this layout. Oh, that was cool. 
But, uh, you know, that means there's room for uh, for some uh, Britain plays in the future, perhaps. Awesome. And so then for both of you, what is a piece of advice you would give to designers? I think um, the biggest piece of advice, and I it's, it doesn't just apply to this game, but I've had other games. The same thing is uh, just because you have a game and someone says no doesn't mean it's not a good game and doesn't mean nobody's going to want it. There is a match out there for you and your game and another publisher. Now, every publisher has different uh, little check boxes that they need to click and your game might not resonate with them, but that doesn't mean it won't with somebody. And I I would say, keep going, keep developing, keep play testing it and and keep working because I think you'll find more times than not, uh, if you believe in your game and you know it's a good game, that there's going to be a match out there for it. Love that. Uh, Well, I think... That's really good, Corey. Um, <laughs> man, <laughs> I think my uh, advice is just to be sure to keep your horizons broadened, right? Like make sure that you just have lots of interest, that you talk to lots of people, that you absorb lots of different things because inspiration can come from anywhere and it doesn't have to always like literally translate from one thing to another. But, you know, looking at how things work and always being curious and always um, thinking of problems to solve can really lead to um, great designs and great ideas and just to be open. I agree with that. I know I do a lot of traveling to try to inspire myself (laughs) and playing other games. You always get inspired by new mechanics and themes and yeah. Excellent advice, boys. Thanks. All right. Well, then let's go to if you have any projects that are coming out, whether it's something you can announce. Is there anything you can talk about? There's one thing I can talk about for sure. And that's because there was already a crowd sale for it on Backerkit later last year uh, for Explosion in the Laboratory. Uh, So what that is, is a prequel to a game called Fire in the Library by Weird Giraffe Games. And that should be showing up at conventions in the near future. Um, If you weren't a backer, uh, you can look out for it. It's basically a 27 card push your luck game in in the universe of Fire in the Library. So it's a much more travel-sized version uh, that gives you the same feel, but still being a different game. So what's up with everything exploding in that universe? <laughs> so so I told you that it's a prequel. So like the fire in the library, it was it was fun for me to think, well, what caused that fire? And so my the, the inspiration of the game was, okay, there's a lab on the same campus as this library, and uh, the chemicals that they're mixing got a little too volatile, caused an explosion, which uh, caught the uh, library on fire. See, it all, it all ties together. Oh, God. So that's what I was spending my money on in college was other people blowing things up. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Nice. Very nice. What about you, Donnie? Do you have anything? Uh, No projects at the moment to look out for, but I'm always working on a million things at once. And um, one of these days, one of them will take. I love that. And Donnie are work- and I are working on a lot of things together. Uh, you know, look for us at conventions and we'll... Uh, We'll certainly uh, be interested in getting feedback and playtesting uh, whatever we're currently working on. That is very true. We have one um, <laughs> one prototype that we will have at Gen Con that I'm, I'm really excited about. So 
come come find us. Cool. Also, if you want to get your game signed, come find them for that too. <laughs> That's true. It will, uh, Mission Control will be uh, available to purchase at Gen Con. And uh, yeah, we'll have our Sharpies ready. Beautiful. All right. Well, then for my last question, that's completely unrelated to your games. If you could be the designer of any game that you did not design, what would you choose and why? So the game that I would design would be Wingspan. And that is because I am a huge fan of birds. So after I moved up to Vermont, besides board games, um, the other thing that I got into was birding because I'd never been so close to nature before. Um, so I got really into birds, really into the names, photography, binoculars, waking up early, going on long walks in the middle of nowhere sort of thing, the whole nine yards. And then Wingspan came out and it kind of took the world by storm. And the, the thing about Wingspan was that I was terrible at it because I would spend the whole game like looking at the cards because they were so amazing and so interesting. And... I, to this day, it's just such a great example of tying a theme in with the mechanics and having everything just kind of work. Like, I love how the game works if you love birds, if you don't love birds. um, It's just a, a great game to play in and of itself. And I really wish that I... You know, if I can't design Wingspan because it's already designed, that I could have that I could design a game that feels like Wingspan made me feel the first time I played it when, you know, I lost so miserably because I was like, oh, I must I must get that specific bird because I really like that bird. I saw it the other day in my backyard and it makes this song, you know, and so that's that's my answer. (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, then, Corey, what about you? I can attest to that. I've played many, many uh, Donnie bird prototypes. Uh, he uh, <laughs> and they're good, One and day. they're very good. They're very good. Uh, so you know, someone's got to give him a shot here and take, start taking a look at these. Um, but uh, this was an interesting question because I could go a number of different directions. I could go, oh, what's uh, you know, what's just my favorite game, or what's a theme that I like, uh, and, and pick a game in that. But I, I'm going to actually go. I think the safe route and I'm going to pick ticket to ride. And the reason why is because I think uh, what I appreciate about that game. And I, you know, the reason why I wish I designed it is because it's so accessible. It's resonated with such a large population. It takes basically pretty simple mechanisms and puts them together in this great package uh, to make a, you know, uh, you know, they people use the term gateway game of getting people into the hobby and getting them excited about games again, and then then fi- eventually finding more games that they like. Um, it's this one of these great games that like anybody can pick up and play, and not only have a good time playing that game, find interest in playing other games as well. I think um, that might not have been typically in their in their repertoire. Very nice. Yeah, that's a great game. I actually realized I thought I had a standalone game, but I have an expansion and I don't actually own the original. So I'm like, damn it. Now I got to buy it. Oh, no. Yeah, I was given uh, Ticket to Ride Japan as a gift. And I don't think they realized it was an expansion. And I also did not realize until today. That, that was an expansion? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I read it. That's funny. I didn't on know the that box. Either. Pretty small. Yeah, right? Whoopsies. Oh, well. 
But okay, well, thanks for joining us for this episode of Game Design Unbox Inspiration Publication, episode 68, Mission Control, Critical Orbit. And thanks again, Corey and Donnie, for joining us. For anyone trying to find you online, where can you be reached? We have a website, uh, conceptmedley.com. I think I, and there's an email on there. We have a Facebook page called Concept Medley. Uh, we have an Instagram, Concept Medley or Concept Medley Games. Uh, I think there's, and also Twitter, Concept Medley. So, Concept Medley is this pseudo name we, we use to mean both of us. Uh, you can find us at one of those uh, social apps. Very cool. And then I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. If you're trying to find me on the Twitter or the Instagram, you can find me uh, as Token Gamer, and that's G-A-Y-M-E-R. Thanks again, guys, for being on the show and talking about your asymmetric, cooperative, real-time game, which would typically cause stress for people, but actually everyone who's played it has really enjoyed it. So thanks for making a cool game. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. And if you're looking for a great board game, bag, play bat, or gaming table, check out All Play at letsallplay.com. Join us next time.